Turn with me to 1 Timothy, beginning in chapter 1. To begin tonight on a new series in the pastoral epistles, the traditional label we give to Paul's three letters to his sons in the faith, Timothy and Titus. These three letters all bear a unique feature in the fact that they're very personal, written, written to one person in particular, and uh, offer lots of personal insights as well as lots of sound instruction on the management and the affairs, the spiritual nurture of the church. Uh, these letters are most certainly Paul's final letters that we have. And uh, according to tradition and various clues we can piece together from Scripture, we believe that these letters were actually written after Paul's Roman impri- his imprisonment at Rome as recorded at the end of Acts. Of course, according to tradition, uh, Paul was released and uh, traveled extensively, perhaps even to the western frontier of the Roman Empire, uh, before he was imprisoned a second time in Rome. And uh, we believe that this last letter of 2 Timothy was penned perhaps months or even weeks before he was put to death, beheaded under Emperor Nero around 67 AD. But we want to focus tonight on 1 Timothy, and one, one interesting thing to note is that both of, both of his letters to Timothy open with a warfare imagery, exhorting Timothy to be a good soldier, to wage his warfare with great skill and diligence. And both of these letters end with the language of fighting as a warrior in the arena and exhorts and inspires Christians to press on to finish well. Well, from our passage tonight, we want to, we want to gain the insight and counsel that Paul was giving to his apprentice and younger son in the faith. And also, as we might consider uh, the means that God has given us to strengthen us in the midst of battle. And as tonight, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, which is one of God's means of sustenance in the Christian life, we want to consider how we can be equipped to fight well. Please follow with me, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, 
for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to this service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we have your scriptures, that they have been passed down to us from ages past, and that they do speak the very truth of God, not the legends and the myths of men, but by the Holy Spirit as men were carried along by your sovereign will. Thank you for giving us this sound instruction. May you teach us and minister to our hearts. And we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One day on the way home from school, when I was in about the third grade, I was surprised to find a crowd gathering around me at the end of my street. And there I saw one of my closest friends coming out to engage me in a fist fight. He was accusing me, or was prompted by the accusation, that I had been talking badly about him behind his back, which was undoubtedly false. I stood trembling, very intimidated, because he was older, and I saw all of his friends egging him on, just ready and eager to see blood. I took a good pounding that day, partly because I was completely unprepared for the fight. Now, the good thing is little boys can usually fight, get it out of their system, and be the best friends the very next day. Now, as I've grown through the years, I can say that I'm no pacifist, but I do believe that fights can be avoided, or should be avoided, if at all possible. But there are times when you have no choice but to fight. I've resolved that as my own boys come of age, I'm going to teach them how to fight. Not how to start them, but how to finish them. My boys need to know how to defend themselves. They need to be able to discern when a fight can be 
avoided and when it cannot. I will teach them how to use their minds, to use their words, and if necessary, to use their fists. Like a good spiritual father, I believe that Paul is instructing young Timothy how to fight well. I believe that like Timothy, most of us, or you and I, are weak and unprepared to fight the battle before us as we make our journey heavenward. And so we need God's word and his strength that he alone provides in order to fight well. Every good coach and commanding officer in the military knows that in order to be successful, whether it's a game or military combat, you need a good defense, a good offense, and a firm foundation that undergirds everything that you do. That's how I want to approach this text, by first considering Paul's warning and exhortation to Timothy on the part of defense. He seems to be challenging Timothy to avoid dangers in verses 3 through 10. Especially the type of dangers that involve false teachers, false teaching, and immorality. Paul, I believe, is saying to Timothy, beginning in verse 3, to not get embroiled with this, this strain of strange teachings that are distracting him and the people of God away from effective gospel ministry. Paul will use even more direct language of avoidance in 2 Timothy 2.16 and Titus 3.9, warning Timothy to, to avoid godless chatter, foolish controversies, arguments, and quarreling. You see, it's tempting for a young pastor to get entangled with all the latest theological issues. Maybe tempted to want to prove his mettle, to show off his knowledge by engaging with the ideas that are on the forefront of discussion. Paul charges Timothy to stay out, to stick to his post, to not get pulled by the undertow of the age which is leading people into foolish doctrines. As we, full, as we full well know, sometimes a policy of avoidance does not always work. Timothy, as a leader, has a responsibility to protect the flock he must engage. And so he must confront these men who are teaching falsely. Now, what is that issue here, as it says in verse 4, are myths and endless genealogies. Most scholars believe that these were writings from the Jewish intertestamental period uh, that were filled with fanciful stories about the Old Testament patriarchs embellishing lots of details that aren't in the scriptures and speculating sort of wild conclusions about uh, the work of God that are not recorded in sacred scripture. Is this merely a harmless passing fad? Well, we might think so until we come to verse 6 when Paul heightens the sense of urgency when he uses language like accusing these leaders of leading people away, wandering away, which is an indicator of serious spiritual desertion. These men and those who follow are swerving off of the road. They are getting lost. 
and they cannot find their way back. Paul was saying, stay on track. Watch the proper road signs. Remain focused and pay attention to your life and your doctrine. Well, the language makes it clear that in in chapter 1 that these people, these certain persons Paul was alluding to early in the chapter include the two men at the end of the chapter, Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, whom Paul excommunicates for blasphemy. Paul, Paul, in verse 7, begins begins to expose these men's motives. One is ambition. It says they want to be teachers of the law. Like the Pharisees, they sought after position, honor, and the respect of men. Like first semester students in undergraduate or even seminary who are confronted with brand new ideas, all of a sudden think they know everything. But Paul calmly informs us that these men do not even know what they are talking about. At the end of 1 Timothy in chapter 6, he says that such a man is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. Paul is reminding Timothy of his duty. In contrast to these men who want to be teachers of the law, Timothy is a teacher of the law. And he needs to be careful and he needs to understand the dangerous consequences people face if they are led astray from sound doctrine. And so what we get in verses 9 and 10 are a a pretty remarkable treatment, a summary of sorts of sins that violate the Ten Commandments. If you look at them closely, you'll see that all Ten Commandments are basically covered. In verse 9, we see a nuanced listing of evildoers that basically cover the first four of the Ten Commandments. But then at the end of verse 9, Paul shifts and begins to focus on what we traditionally call the second table of the law, the the latter six manward commandments, beginning with honor your father and your mother, and on to murder, and on to issues of adultery, of which Paul includes your word in the NIV is pervert, but it's, it's, a, it's alluding to homosexual behavior. It's interesting that in the, in the unpacking the Eighth Commandment, do not steal, Paul applies it to slave trading, one of the most grievous forms of theft in humanity. And I, I would begin at this verse and go to other verses to make the case that the Bible does not condone the inhumane practice of slavery especially the grievous form of slavery that formed the foundation of early American history. But that is for another sermon and another time. Paul wraps up his listing of the law, appealing to the Ninth and Tenth Commandments, condemning liars and perjurers. And of course, lying and perjury implies coveting the final commandment. And just in case anybody felt left out, Paul wraps it up with a final summary in verse 10. And for whatever else might be contrary to the sound doctrine. So Paul is making it clear that there is a very real danger. If we stray from sound doctrine, people's lives 
and their morality. The fabric of society begins to unravel as we digress and move away from the sound teachings of Scripture. We live in a day and age in which we find ourselves with many fads running circles in the evangelical world. Some on the harmless side of the spectrum, others to the near heretical. Many of these are mere distractions that overshadow the clear teachings of the gospel. For instance, I would contend that the Left Behind series in a, with a preoccupation on end times theology is a bit of distraction away from the clear teachings of the gospel. Of, of more severe nature today might be the health and wealth gospel that reduces God to the mere dispenser of the American dream. Other even probably more severe dangers are those in evangelicalism that want to give up claims of absolute truth in order to keep in vogue with postmodern thinking. And then there are issues closer to the heart of the gospel, of those trying to redefine our understanding of justification, making it more and more like Roman Catholicism than a Protestant view of salvation by grace through faith, recasting election and effectual calling and perseverance in terms of our works, rather than rooted in God's free grace. Every age will have its errors, its distractions, and teachings that lead people down empty paths that are void of the grace and the peace we have by following Christ Jesus. Paul says, avoid them. But sometimes we must engage them while retaining this perspective, this focus on the central issue at hand, aiming at directly at the goal of love. In verse 5, we, we hear Paul saying that the goal of this command is love. You see, the purpose of Timothy confronting false teachers is not about engaging a turf war. It's not about asserting his authority and that he's got to be the top guy in charge. It's not to humiliate his opponents. Rather, Timothy is in this fight for love. The end of the law is love for God's truth and for the good and welfare of people whose lives and eternal security is at stake. You see, for a pastor, there is actually a greater challenge than rebuking false teachers and correcting, correcting the flock when they go astray. I believe verse 5 alludes to the fact that the greatest challenge we face is dealing with our own selves and confronting our sin and our impure motives. In verse 5, we're reminded that we have to labor to keep a pure heart, of ridding ourselves of selfish ambition, keeping a conscience that is free from unconfessed sin and unreconciled relationships. And so the first key in verse 5 for fighting well is to keep one's heart pure. The psalmist David in Psalm 51 cries out, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
1 John 1, 9 echoes this sentiment when it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Only God, by his grace, can cleanse us of our sin and create in us a pure heart. The second key to this fight is to maintain a good conscience. David records his state of unrepentance with his sin of adultery and murder, recorded in Psalm 32 when he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So the servant of God must labor to keep his conscience clear of baggage that will weigh him down in his race and keep him from being ineffective in the gospel ministry. And the third key towards fighting the good fight is to maintain and hold on to a sincere faith. The man or the woman with sincere faith is true and genuine. He has an undivided heart that is loyal to his master. In contrast, there are those who have rejected these keys and so consequently have made shipwreck of their faith, as it says in verse 19. The nautical imagery we have in this verse could could possibly be one of two uh, understandings. One might be that these men have basically cast their anchor overboard and they have run the ship upon the rocks to its destruction. Or this possibly could allude to neglect of sailors in which they have damaged the rudder, making them helpless, tossed to and fro over the raging seas to their doom. I've known too many men like Hymenaeus and Alexander who once professed faith in Christ, even served the kingdom, and yet have lost their way. They proved to be professors but not possessors of living faith. Some cave into immorality and refuse to repent. Others have neglected the means of grace and have crashed their ship upon the rocks. They are no longer in the fight. They have gone AWOL in the Lord's army. They've committed mutiny on the Lord's ship and find themselves stranded on a deserted island waiting for the dreadful day of God's judgment. To stay in the fight, to finish well, we not only need a good defense, a good offense focused on love, but we need a foundation that anchors deep in the gospel of God's grace. I want you to notice how Paul anchors deep in the godness of God throughout this chapter. First, he is praising, he's full of praise and joy over God, his Savior, verse 1. He calls God Father, verse 2. He commends to us the grace, mercy, and peace that come from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, who is our hope, verse 1. Advancing to verse 11, he refers to this gospel of the blessed God. God is blessed in the sense that he is all-sufficient. He is is unperturbed. He is not threatened. 
He is fully content. He is fully rejoicing in the fact that he is God and there is no other. And lastly, in verse 17, we find this appeal to the king eternal, who, which basically means he's imperishable. The earth will wear out like a garment, but the Lord and his promises endure forever. Unto the king eternal, immortal and invisible, who is beyond creation, and to whom belongs all honor and glory forever and ever. Such is the reveling in the goodness and the godness of God. I believe it that was this focus on the godness of God that sustained David and gave him strength for his many battles. When facing Goliath, David was not intimidated because he kept his focus on the greatness of his God. His view of God enabled him to see Goliath as a mere varmint, a pest in the Lord's vineyard. And while Saul and the others were asking what they should do, David was asking, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so David struck down the bully, not by his own might, but by the power of God by faith. He fought well and overcame. It is this same strength that we find in verse 12, that comes not from ourselves, but from Christ Jesus our Lord. Jacob was a strong man who wrestled with God. Peter was a strong man who was called the rock. Paul ran and finished well. But all of these men found their strength, not in themselves, but in a mighty Savior. All men grow weary. Even youths become faint and exhausted. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. In verses 13 and following, Paul takes a turn here that gets personal. And what's beautiful and lovely here is that Paul does not hide his resume of his past persecutions and his hatred towards the church of God. He here gladly puts his own shame on display for the glory of Christ, who had showed him mercy. See, Paul is exhibit A for God's vast power to transform the church's worst enemy into its greatest ally. God's mercy turned an insolent Saul into a meek and zealous Paul, the missionary exemplar to the Gentiles, the very people the Pharisees despised. This reference in verse 13 where Paul says that he acted ignorantly in unbelief is not excusing his ill behavior. He is still very culpable for his crimes. And yet he says this to highlight the greatness of Christ's compassion upon him, him who wrongly thought he was doing God a favor in his misguided zeal. And so Paul becomes for us an example of Christ's immense and perfect patience, telling us, reminding us, that nobody, no matter how hardened the sinner, is ever beyond the grasp of God's rich mercy. The hound of heaven 
can sniff out any varmint, can outrun any vandal, bringing him kicking and screaming into the kingdom to make him an ally and a son in the Lord's army. Well, not only did Paul receive mercy and pardon, but he was the beneficiary of God's grace. God who included him in his own covenant family and appointed him to the service of God's kingdom. Paul uses a superlative here to talk about the abounding, overflowing grace that was given to him that is, that is borne out, that is fruitful with life-giving faith and a deep, affectionate love for all of God's people. Paul gives testimony to God's amazing grace in verse 15, perhaps the peak of the chapter. Here is Gospel 101. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul includes himself in that body of sinful humanity. But he not only includes himself, he also makes himself the chief. As a testimony to God's grace, he calls himself the worst sinner of them all. And that is not past tense. That is present in Paul's self-understanding of his own deep wretchedness and brokenness and neediness before Almighty God. In my study of great men of the faith in their spiritual biographies, I've noticed a trend that's beautiful and wonderful that that all of the great men I admire, at one time or another, came to a point of spiritual crisis. They were moved to their breaking point where they began to recognize the magnitude of their own corruption, the depth of their own sin and wretchedness before a holy God. St. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, Robert Murray McShane, Oswald Chambers, and many others, all sing the same tune, bemoaning their own sinful self, refusing to boast in anything of themselves, refusing to come to a point of refusing to look at their own accomplishments as, as having arrived at some plateau of holiness. Rather, each determined to give glory to God and chastising themselves as the chief of sinners. And I believe from these men's lives and from the scriptures, we see that a growing awareness of one's sin is a sign of maturity. Because the greater we see the holiness of our God, and the deeper we see our need and our sin, so bigger becomes the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that bridges that great gulf. Well, it's in this in mind that Paul gives his exhortation to Timothy in verse 18. To fight the good fight. Now, that's the NIV translation, and it's probably not the best translation. The word is actually more be a good soldier in waging the warfare. It has more military connotations than it does arena combat. I believe that what Paul is saying to Timothy is that you're preparing not just for a fist fight or a wrestling match. You need to be ready 
for war and be prepared to fight to the finish. And so, my friends, tonight as we near conclusion, I question you. Are you in the fight? Or perhaps are you tempted to hang up your gloves too soon? Are you engaged in the battle? Fighting against sin. Fighting for the truth. Fighting to see that the knowledge of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In his Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes the point that only the, that the only one who fully understands the difficulty and the greatness of temptation is the one who has stood up against it. He says, you don't find out the strength of the German army by giving in to it. Only the one who stands up and resists the wind knows how strong the wind truly is. And likewise, only as we stand firm against temptation do we know how strong it is and learn to depend upon a supernatural strength. And so, friends, our Christian calling is to stand strong, to stay at our post in a fight until our very last breath or until the final trumpet sounds. Just this morning, Peggy Weston of our church was telling me, giving me an update about her son, Peter, who's recently been deployed to Iraq for an eight-month mission. And before his appointment, Peter was telling his family about uh, his thoughts on deployment. And he said something to the effect that he feels like this last 14 years of his life has been building up to this very point for this very purpose. He's convinced that this is what he was made to do. He gave his, his obviously uh, concerned parents this reassurance that even if he were to die in battle, he would die a happy man because he's a man doing what he loves and doing what he believed in. Peggy showed me a picture of Peter standing proudly in his marine uniform, grinning from ear to ear, a happy man at the center of God's will for him. He is in it for the fight. To advance the cause of freedom half a world away. Friend, are you in it for the fight? Are you prepared for the battle? Are you fighting the Lord's battles in the strength of the Lord. This recently we have buried quite a few precious members of our congregation. I think of Ron Shea, a dear man, and others like him who, in my estimate, have finished very well. I think of Ron on his last day with us doing what he loved. Serving here at the church in education, continuing his evangelistic ministry in the city. And I don't know about you, but that's how I want to go out. I want to finish well. I want to go down fighting, loving God and loving his work until the final hour of the final day. 
And then when I enter into the Savior's arms to hear these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have fought well. Let us pray. Gracious God, our strong tower, our strength, and our might. We give you glory and we give you praise. For you give us strength for the battle. It is great and it is strong. The world, the devil, and the flesh are very powerful. But your power is infinite and almighty. And I pray for us as the people of God that we would fight with great strength. That we would hold fast the good testimony. That we would labor to keep our hearts pure and our consciences good and clear before you. And that you might make us more than conquerors through Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we do pray. Amen.